But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This is the word of the Lord. How's that? There we go. Pardon me. Well, my name is, <clears throat> quietly, my name is Fred, and I'm part of the team here. And uh, as Jake mentioned, we are we're fast approaching Easter. Uh, we, we've got that exciting event on Good Friday at the Stanley. And then uh, we're so looking forward to Easter Sunday and the baptisms following that. Um, I have the incredible privilege of baptizing my daughter Maggie, and uh, we're, we're looking forward to that. So, um, now it's fitting, I think, as we move toward Easter weekend, that we take this extended look that we've been taking at the cross. It's appropriate that we look at the cross, but not as just something that happened back there in history to Jesus two thousand years ago on a Roman cross outside of Jerusalem. But it's important that we understand the comfort that comes to us from the cross by looking to Christ, by trusting the work that he has done for us. What we've been doing is is looking at the comfort that comes to us here and now, living in 21st century Vancouver, the comfort that comes from that work and that event to us today, here and now. This morning, we're going to look at the passage that Stephen just read for us, Hebrews 9, 11 to 14, in order to look at the comfort that we have from a cleansed conscience. The comfort that comes from having a cleansed conscience. That's what Hebrews 9, 11 to 14 is all about. Now, I'm sure all of us are aware of this. Feeling guilty is no fun at all, right? Feeling guilty sucks. Feeling guilty is a tremendous burden which uh, over time just becomes unbearable. It's like you take one of those big Herschel knapsacks and you fill it full of heavy rocks to the top and you put that on your back and you walk around with it all day, every day. Guilt is exhausting. Guilt saps our joy. Guilt drains us of what makes life worth living. Guilt is, uh, well, it's no fun at all. 
Now, there, before we, we look at this a bit further, I, I just want to say that there is such a thing as false guilt. False guilt is feeling guilty for something that is not your fault. So, for example, um, in the case of divorce, many children will feel guilty for what happened. But that's a false guilt because it's not their fault. So there is such a thing as false guilt. But here's the problem. Most of the guilt that we feel is, is real. Most of the guilt that we feel is not false guilt. It's real guilt. And we feel real guilt because we're really guilty. That's very complicated. We feel real guilt because we are guilty. Romans 3.23 says that the entire human race, without exception, has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The old Anglican Book of Common Prayer puts it wonderfully by saying, we have left undone the things which we ought to have done, and we have done the things which we ought not to have done. There is no health in us, it says. That is an adequate diagnosis of the human condition. And not only that, not only have we fallen short of, of God's glory, but here's the real kicker. All of us have fallen short of our own standards. Could you imagine for a moment if God held you to the standard that you use? You'd you'd stand condemned before him. God is just. And if he just used our standard with us, we'd be condemned. Am I encouraging you this morning? See, this is a universal problem. And unless we understand the human condition from this perspective, unless we understand this universal problem of sin, depravity, whatever you want to call it, we really won't understand what's going on in our conscience. See, our conscience is God's built-in reminder that we're guilty because of our sin and our rebellion against Him. God has built in a reminder. It's called a conscience. It's there for a reason. New Testament scholar William Lane writes, God has built into our consciousness a sensitivity of feeling morally filthy, as a means of summoning us to recognize that sin makes us dirty within. Sin corrupts. It is not simply a violation of the law of God. It is a violation of our personhood. Sin stains us, and sin demands cleansing. Think of it. Sin is a violation of our personhood. Sin, sin, destroys or shatters the image of God. Sin twists our humanity. Sin defiles us. Sin corrupts us. And so right now, all of us should be thinking, what can be done? 
What can be done? How can this stain of sin, how can our guilty consciences be cleansed? And that's what Hebrews 9, 11 to 14 is about. Let's pray. Father, would you help us lean in this morning and receive your word by faith to take into our hearts by your spirit the word of grace and truth and cleansing that you have for our convicted consciences this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me repeat it again. Hebrews 9, 11 to 14 is about the comfort. I want to offer you comfort this morning. I, I never want to stand here and offer condemnation. Never. Hebrews 9, 11 to 14 is about comfort. It's about the comfort that comes from the cross because we can have a cleansed conscience. Don't you want that? Don't you want to just take that backpack off and lay it down and never put it on again? We can have comfort by looking to Christ. And we can have our consciences cleansed, pure, Isaiah says, as white as snow. So I have two points this morning I want to look at with you from this passage. Who Christ is and what Christ did. It's very simple. Who Christ is and what Christ did. First, who Christ is. Look at verses 11 and 12 with me, please. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Verse 11 says, this is who Christ is. Verse 11 says that Christ is a high priest. He is a high priest. In fact, it says that Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. We'll look at the good things that have come in a few minutes. But this morning, right now, I want to focus on Christ as the high priest. I want to look with you at Christ's high priesthood. In Hebrews 9... What the author does is he contrasts the priesthood of ancient Israel in the old tabernacle under the old covenant. He contrasts that ancient Israelite priesthood with the priesthood or the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. Now, in order to understand, because some of this language may be unfamiliar to to some of us, in order to understand the whole argument that the author is making, we need to kind of get a running start at it. So come back with me, if you would, to chapter 9, verses 1 to, th- 1 to 3. Look at what it says here. Chapter 9, verses 1 to 3, it says, Now the first covenant, that's the old covenant that God made with Israel through Moses at Sinai. Okay? 
It says, now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. That's the earthly sanctuary. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. We're kind of getting a, 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 a map, a schematic of the inside of the tabernacle. And then he says in verse 3, behind the second curtain, there was a first curtain that cut the, the whole tabernacle off from the people. But he says now behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place. Now here's what the author's doing. Remember, he wants to tell us about Jesus' high priesthood. And in order to do that, he takes us way back, thousands of years, into the wilderness. After Israel had been delivered out of their slavery in Egypt, God brought them through the Red Sea, and they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years before they entered the Promised Land. That's where we are in this picture. And the author brings us back there because he wants to remind us of something that the Israelites did. He says that they set up this tent. Now, I hate camping. But this wasn't like that. This was an amazing tent. Huge. Or huge. I don't know how to do that. But this was an amazing tent. And it was a place that was literally in the center of all the the people of Israel as they camped around it. And this is the place where the priesthood would come. And this was the place where the God set up for his people to approach him through the priesthood. And there's this setup. There's the holy place, and then there's the most holy place, or the holy of holies. This first room, and then this second room. I know all this might sound strange, but just bear with me because this is important. In Hebrews 9, verses 6 and 7, he goes on, he says, When everything had been arranged like this, he's been describing the, the interior of the tabernacle or this big tent. He says, When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room, to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. So get the picture here. Here's what we need to be aware of. There's an outer room and there's an inner room. There's these two rooms the outer and the inner, the the holy place and the most holy place, and they're separated by this great, big, thick curtain. And only the high priest could go in behind the curtain. Only the high priest, not the regular priests, but only the high priest. And he could only do that once a year. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, only the high priest could go in through the veil into the Holy of Holies. And look at what else it says. It says he was never, he was never allowed to enter without blood. He couldn't go through the veil without bringing 
blood, the blood of sacrificed bulls and goats. Now, if he had dared to enter into the Holy of Holies without bringing blood, God would have immediately struck him down in his righteous, just wrath against his sin. The writer tells us the blood that he brings is for the sin. Now, how's that work? The blood of sacrificed animals was necessary because God is holy and human beings are not. See, the bloody sacrifice of the animal was a graphic reminder. Imagine that. You know, you slit the throat of the animal and it's writhing on the ground and bleeding out. And that is meant to be. That is meant to be a very graphic reminder to everyone that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Here's what biblical scholar Robert Lyon writes. He says, animal life was given up on behalf of the life of the people. Animal life was given up on behalf of the life of the people. Judgment and atonement were carried out through the transfer of the sin of the people to the sacrificed animal. So the the animal is standing in for the people. He is, what's happening to the animal, he or she, what's happening to the animal should be happening to the people. They make the connection. They see the blood. They see the suffering. They see the death. And they understand, I should be there. That should be happening to me. The wages of my sin is death. That's the image. That's the idea. Now, by offering this blood, by the high priest going in, never without blood, but by offering this blood of bulls and goats, there was only a a temporary and a partial atonement for sins. That's important. Mark that. When the high priest went into the Holy of Holies through the veil with the blood of bulls and goats, he only made a temporary and a partial atonement for sins. See, the high priest is, is representing the people of Israel, and he goes in, but he's only allowed to go in very, very briefly. It's not like he, you know, sets up a lounge chair and, you know, turns on the TV and, you know, redecorates in there. He is in, he offers the blood, and he is out. He's in there very briefly because the atonement is only partial. It's only temporary. It's, it's ceremonial. Hebrews 9.8 clarifies what all of this means. Here's what it says. The Holy Spirit was showing by this, this temporary, this partial work, was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first 
tabernacle was still functioning. See, here's the problem. Under the Old Covenant, through the sacrificial system and the priesthood that went into the tabernacle and worked in the tabernacle, and later on, the the temple that uh, Solomon built in Jerusalem followed this exact same pattern. It was a a, a type of that tabernacle. Um, All of that never really gave anyone any real access to God. Because no atonement was really made. Hebrews 9.9 explains why. The gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. See? Now the reason for that should be fairly obvious to us. Think about it. You know, the the death of the animal that's sacrificed may be a graphic reminder the wages of sin is death, but I've also got to understand that that animal cannot pay the price that I owe. And that, that would have been obvious. People would have connected that there's something left out, there's something remaining, there's something more that needs to be done for my sin. Hebrews 10.4 says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. How can the blood of bulls and goats take away our sin? The sin of you and the sin of me, the sin of humanity. How can the blood of bulls and goats do that? It can't. That's what Hebrews 10.4 is saying. So here's the dilemma. Unless, Unless the guilt of our sin is removed completely, fully, finally, utterly, we will never know the comfort of a cleansed conscience. We'll never know it. Now, I can imagine somebody at this point in time thinking to themselves right now, yeah, but wait a minute. What about somebody, some old guy that lives a long time and, and he says, you know, I've got no regrets. I've lived a good life. I've, I've got a clear conscience. I'm ready to meet my maker. What about somebody like that? Well, I think it's obvious. That's just whistling past the graveyard. That's just trying to put a happy face on a very sad situation. That is, that's just someone trying to whitewash the truth about their life. Talk is cheap. Talk will count for nothing when we get before the Holy God. In fact, I think everybody will just shut up. Hebrews 1 says nobody will have any excuse. And the reason for that is, the reason for that is God doesn't, God doesn't look at us the way we look at each other, or even the way that we look at ourselves. In fact, look at 1 Samuel 16, 7. I want to invite you to meditate on this verse with me for a second. It says, the Lord does not look at things the way that people look at things. People look at the outward appearance. Here's the kicker. But the Lord looks at the heart. Now, I don't know about you right now, but that should probably make us feel uncomfortable. 
God sees into our innermost being. God knows fully every thought and every intention of our hearts. God doesn't look at you the way I look at you. God sees to the depth of who you really are in your most private, intimate moments. He knows what you've thought and the things that you've never shared with anybody else. Who would dare to think that a God like that, that any of us could somehow possibly be prepared to meet our maker? That's just whitewash. One day, my friends, we will, I say this with fear and trembling, we will stand before the holy God. And we will give an account. And if that doesn't cause you to at least pause and reflect and maybe tremble a little bit for a moment, I just don't think you're switched on. I, I, I pray the Spirit of God would begin to switch you on. We need this. We need to hear this. So this great question that I posed in the beginning, it remains on the table. How can the stain of our sin and our guilt, how can our guilty conscience be cleansed? And that brings us back to Hebrews 9, 11, and 12. There's that stark contrast between the, the temporary access of the high priest and the tabernacle. We read this. But... but Verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all in holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Now here's the picture. Here's what you need to understand. The physical tabernacle that they carried around with them and set up in the wilderness, the physical temple that Solomon built later on in Jerusalem, here's what you need to hear. Those were only and always just types. They were copies of a glorious reality. A glorious reality of a heavenly temple. That's what the writer is saying here. The author calls it a greater and more perfect tent. See, this is, there's a heavenly temple. This, everything we just see, the, the, these temples and these, these tabernacles, they're just copies. There is a heavenly temple that utterly transcends the time and the space of this creation, of this whole created order. And that's exactly what Acts 17 reminds us. And Paul is at the Areopagus. He says, God does not dwell in tents or temples made by human hands. Get a grip. That's my ad. You know, we've got all the wrong idea about God. He doesn't fit comfortably in our back pocket. He's not for us to manage. God is the creator God. He transcends his creation. We can't control him. He is utterly distinct.
from everything else that he has made. And so what Hebrews 9, 11, and 12 is saying is that when Jesus died and rose again, this is so important, when Jesus died and rose again, he was the great and the final high priest. Jesus is the great and the final high priest. He didn't go into the, the holy the holiest place of heaven. He didn't go into the heavenly tabernacle, into the very presence of God, bringing the blood of bulls and goats. No. He offered to his father his own blood, his own life. Why? To purchase our redemption. He did it to save us. He did it to make full and final atonement for our sins. He did it so that we would know the comfort of the cross. That's why the Gospels of Matthew and Mark and Luke all say that when Christ died, the curtain this, this great curtain, this thick curtain, this heavy curtain, it weighed like a ton, literally. It was torn. It was torn in two from the top to the bottom. What a message. When Christ died, the curtain that separated us all from the presence of God was torn from, top, from the top to the bottom. God ripped it. He said, welcome. He said, come in. He said, there's an invitation. He put out the welcome mat for all those who believe. He's made the way. He opened the doors and nailed them open in the person of Jesus Christ. This is such comfort. That's why Hebrews 10, 19, please, please, please hear this. Lean in and, and, and hear it with faith this morning. Hebrews 10, 19 says, this is amazing. We have confidence. We have confidence to enter the most holy place. He's not talking about the tabernacle. He's not talking about the temple. He's talking about the holy temple where God dwells. He says, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus by the new and the living way opened for us through the curtain. God ripped it. Why? Because He loves us. Because He he wants us to be reconciled to Him. He wants us to savor and enjoy and and delight in him we're made for him we won't find happiness anywhere else apart from him that brings me to my second point what christ did hebrews 9 12 to 14 tells us that jesus accomplished two very important things. We've looked at how he is the high priest. He's the high priest who doesn't come with blood of bulls and goats. He comes with his own blood. He comes into the very presence of God in heaven. But what did that accomplish? What did that accomplish for us? 
Well, he, he accomplished two things for us. First, hear this. He secured. He secured for you and for me. He secured for everyone who believes. He secured our eternal redemption. Look at verse 12. He, Christ, entered once for all once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. My friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, don't doubt it. Don't doubt it. Your redemption is secure. Why? Because Christ has done what he has done on your behalf. Year after year, in the the hundreds of years, for centuries in the history of Israel, year after year on that, that one day, that one day of atonement, year after year, that one high priest would go in year after year, time after time, into that holy of holy places, offering the blood, offering more blood, offering blood upon blood, bulls and goats, blood everywhere. It's because it was partial. It wasn't final. It was provisional. There was something better coming. That's what the writer is telling us. And this fact that this, this sacrifice and this day of atonement and the, and the blood having to be spilled and offered again and again, the fact that that had to continually be done was only just a constant reminder that that work was never completed. It was never finished. Why? Because Christ. Because Christ, the better high priest, the the final and better high priest has finally come. It was all waiting for him. It was all pointing for him. The better and the final high priest has come and he has offered the better sacrifice of his own blood. And where has he offered it? He's offered it upon the altar of the better temple. This uncreated temple. He is secured for us. This is such a word of comfort to you. Some of you doubt your salvation. Some of you, your confidence in your salvation is based on how how good or how bad your devotions have been. Or whether or not you've been snapping at your children lately. Or whether or not you... have watched the right stuff on TV. Your redemption is secure. Why? Because he has secured it with his own blood in the holiest of holy places in heaven before holy God. That's why in John's gospel, what are the last words that Jesus utters before he dies on the cross? You know it. It is finished. It is finished. Full atonement. Father, accept the blood for these my children, my people. That is why in Hebrews 1 verse 3 it says, listen to this. After Jesus made purification for sins, do you know what he did? (laughs) 
he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's what Jesus did after he made purification for your sins and for my sins. He didn't wait until the next time he was called up to bat. He didn't go sit in the dugout. I'll wait. No, he went and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And that, in, the Hebrew, in Hebrews, that point is repeated over and over again. Now, years ago, I mean, this is a long time ago, I, I had this job. I worked the night shifts at a box factory in Cambridge, Ontario. This was not the highlight of my vocational life, but it was a little bit of money and we were desperate. And I worked at this night shifts at the box factory in Ontario, Cambridge, Ontario. And this was not a happy thing. Um, these boxes would come off of one machine and they would pile up, you know, boom, 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 boom. They'd begin to pile up. Here was my job. I would stand at the machine. I would grab the boxes out of here. I would throw them into another machine. And then that, this machine would wrap these, this little set of boxes, okay? Very challenging. But here's the thing. By the time you'd done that and you were turning back, guess what? There's another set of boxes waiting for you. Boom. I, w- I would not be 60 pounds if I, overweight if I was still doing that, hey? You know, and you're just, yeah, don't, don't judge me. So, you know, it was just you're going, you're going, you're, you're sweating, you're tired, and you can't stop. Because if you stop for a moment... The boxes just keep on coming. And you know what? Then they just start to hit into each other. And then they just start to spill out all over the floor and all hell breaks loose. If you wanted a break, if you had to go to the bathroom, you needed a lunch break, guess what? You had to whistle for somebody and you had to wait for them to come and take your place on the line before you could go and get a lunch. You couldn't, you couldn't rest. There was no chair there. There was no time to rest and put up your feet and take it easy. There's no rest. The job was never done. The boxes just kept on coming. Well, guess what? There was no chair in the tabernacle. In the Holy of Holies, there was no chair. Why? Because the high priest's work was never done. The sin just kept on coming. The work was never completed. was never finished. Because it was all waiting for Jesus. Jesus came into the world. Jesus did what no other high priest was ever able to do. He fully, hear it, he fully satisfied the just judgment of God against all of our sins. Full stop, full sacrifice. It is finished. Through the cross, Jesus drank down the cup of God's wrath to its very dregs. There was nothing less, not a drop of it, not for any of us. Full atonement. Nothing more needs to be done. The work is complete. And I pray this morning as I have labored to show you and and preach the glory of this good news that it is hitting your heart. It is ringing in your heart. 
I pray that as you leave here this morning, it will continue to ring in your ears throughout the day because you need this. I need this. Not once a week. No. I need this every day. I need to know that my redemption is eternally secure because of what Christ has done. That's the first thing he accomplished. The second thing he accomplished, briefly, Jesus has purified. Jesus has purified our conscience. Look at verses 13 and 14. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, this is getting weird, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? There's a lot here. The author, again, is contrasting what happened under the old covenant with the work that Jesus Christ has done. And he mentions this new element, this sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer. What? <laughs> well, it's a, it's a reference to something that's, you can go back to uh, Numbers 19. We won't go there. But here's, here's the gist of it. Back in Numbers 19, they would take a heifer, this young cow, they would slaughter it, and then they would burn its carcass completely until it was just ashes. And then they would scoop up the ashes and throw it in a, a basin of water and mix it all around. It would be kind of dark and black water. And then a priest would come and take a branch of hyssop. Not any branch, not ash, not maple, not birch, but hyssop. Dip it in. And then he would go like this with the wet branch. He would, he, would he would sprinkle the people with the ashes that had been mixed with the water. And this was according to the law of purification. It would ceremonially cleanse the flesh of the worshipers. Now, I know all that's very weird, but that's the reference. And, and what the writer to Hebrews is saying is if that purified the flesh of defiled people, how much more, how much more will Christ purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? This really hits home here. Imagine being one of those people. I don't know, that would be strange if it like happened as you were walking down the street, somebody just, you know, took a hiss of branch and started putting water mixed with the ashes of a dead heifer, right? That's but back then, this was expected. But think about it, how personal that would have been. How real it, it would have been to you. How tangible, that's it. How tangible that this, this thing was happening to you as the, the water with the ashes hit you. It would be so tangible and personal. And now make the transfer because... That's exactly what the Holy Spirit does. This morning, and I pray every day, that the Holy Spirit would come and make the work that Christ has done by cleansing your conscience, make it tangible and personal to you. That, that It would be like He is sprinkling you now with His own blood. And that you would... You would hear the word of God, not of condemnation. Remember the, the blood of Abel that condemned Cain that called out from the ground? That's not what's going on here. What we have is the blood of Christ calling out from heaven 
forgiven, reconciled, vindicated. Let that, that water of the word, wash over you and purify your conscience from dead works. The late Jerry Bridges wrote, this is wonderful. He says, there are two courts we must deal with. The court of God in heaven and the court of conscience in our souls. When we first trust in Christ for salvation, God's court is forever satisfied. God's court is forever satisfied. Never again will a charge of guilt be brought against us in heaven. Amen. Our consciences, however, (laughs) that's another matter. Our consciences, however, are continually pronouncing us guilty. Yes? How often are we just tempted to put some of those big rocks back in the back sack and throw that sucker on? Our consciences are continually pronouncing us guilty. That is the function of conscience. Therefore, here it is. Therefore, we must, by faith... Bring the verdict of conscience into line with the verdict of heaven. Do you hear? Faith. Faith hears what I've been saying. Faith reads what is written here. Faith remembers this good news that you've heard wash over you this morning. Faith hears that and receives that and brings that verdict to your conscience. The verdict in heaven that you are forgiven, that you are cleansed. Bring it into your conscience. Believe it right now. Be washed. Be washed. Be cleansed. Be purified. He says, we do this by agreeing with our conscience about our guilt. Yes, we fail in many ways. That's obvious. But then we remind ourselves that our guilt has already already been borne by Christ. This week, your conscience is going to rise up against you. You're going to feel the weight of that knapsack, that backpack on your back. And where are you going to turn? Where are you going to turn? Are you going to think, well, what what more can I do? I could could give some money to the poor. I could could go and and do some, I could volunteer at, at the soup kitchen. I could sponsor a child. Those are all good things. But many of us do good things in order to try and purify our conscience, and that is dead. Those are dead works because they're not born out of faith in Christ. They're not born out of love for God. Just repent. Repent of it. Take the backpack off. Stop trying to work. Stop trying to add anything at all to the work that Christ has done. Live into it. Believe it. Cherish it. Treasure it. Love it. And then go and live it out. Free. Free to love in a sacrificial, generous way that will amaze even you. Because then the Spirit of God will be doing it. And you won't be trying to work out some moral, spiritual calculation about what will make you feel good. 
you'll know that things between you and God are good. He tore the veil. He welcomes you in. Boldly approach, he says, my throne of grace. That's the message. Don't wait. Don't hesitate. Don't condemn yourselves. The devil is the accuser of the brethren. Rush on into his presence, knowing that you are cleansed, that your redemption is secure. And he is your father who loves you more than you could ever imagine. Let's pray. Father in heaven. Oh, the privilege, the holy privilege of calling you father. Remind us that you tore the veil as your son entered into your presence with his own blood. Remind us by your spirit that our redemption is eternally secure. Remind us right now that his blood has purified our conscience. We believe it. Drive it home to our hearts even today, even this week. Grant us, Lord, to boldly approach you without a doubt, without a a whiff of fear, because Jesus has gone ahead of us, and we come in his name and his name alone. And all God's people said, Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.